This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're airing selected hours from our extensive broadcast archive and new live and pre-recorded shows during the pandemic. Check out the schedule at wcbn.org. Next up, Living Writers. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I am so happy to be speaking with Charles Baxter um, in our a virtual conversation here. Charlie, thanks so much for being game to join me today for <laughs> for a talk. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. It's great to be back uh, on your show. Is the back in sort of the air quotes kind of. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's you are a, a dear friend of the show and a dear friend indeed. So I'm yeah, I I'm I was going to say I'm pickled, but I think that's the wrong expression. <laughs> that means I think something else completely. <laughs> but I'm, I'm tickled pink. That's what it is. That's it. getting closer here. Um, well, b- before we ta- start talking about your wonderful new novel, The Sun Collective, I'll read, I'll read the short bio out of the back. Charles Baxter is the author of the novels The Feast of Love, First Light, Saul and Patsy, Shadow Play, and The Soul Thief, and the story collections Believers, Griffin, Harmony of the World, A Relative Stranger, There's Something I Want You to Do, and Through the Safety Net. His stories have been included in the Best American Short Stories, and Baxter lives in Minneapolis. And very recently, many congratulations, Charlie, retired uh, from teaching at the University of Minnesota and the MFA program at writers at Warren Wilson College. And wow. So <laughs> what's, congratulations. Well, thank and you. What's been happening since then? How are you? <laughs> well, you know, how is anybody right, <laughs> right, right now? Uh, I'm not having the retirement that I thought I would have, you know, I thought I would be traveling and I'd be going to movies and I'd be seeing plays and I'd be seeing friends and reading. And I guess the only part of that, which I actually have been doing has been reading, you know, um, nobody, nobody, well, I guess a few people are traveling, but uh, I'm not. Uh, So, you know, I found myself this morning saying to somebody uh, that we're all living in the midst of this pandemic. We're all living uh, what feels like half lives, you know, or yeah. a quarter of the life that you're used to living. Uh, it's not 
I mean, if you're healthy and you're not broke, it's not it's not bad, but it's it's not the life that we thought we were going to have. Um, it's not the life I thought I would have yes. as re- as a retired guy. Yes, it's it's almost impossible to imagine and to think. I don't know. I know that as human beings, we're really adaptable, and and like you said, if you've if you're okay, if you're not broke, uh, and first of all, if you have your health and right. the, the ones you love have their health, then so so lucky. But thinking about kids growing up right now and how, yeah, it's like you said, it's almost as if part of our senses, like some of them are heightened, but some of them are, are not getting sort of the exercise they're used to. Well, you know, that's right. And I think... You know, another phenomenon that um, some of my um, friends have remarked on and which I've noticed is that because because you're not out and around and you're not doing some of the things that you're used to doing, the days go by and if somebody asks you, well, what were you doing yesterday or the day before yesterday or last week, you can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um because, well, I mean, for the obvious reasons, um, you 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 didn't do very much. So, I kind of remember what I was doing by what I was reading at at the time, and you know that's not it's not a bad way to live, but it it's uh, also a little sadder than I think we um, could have anticipated. The, what what are you reading, Charlie? Um, let's see. What am I reading? Um, I was reading. I've been reading a lot of Russian and Soviet era literature, and um, until a couple of days ago, I was reading a novel by a, a writer named Victor Serge, S E R G E. It's a novel called The Case of Comrade Tuleyev. But uh, I finished that book and... How did you come to that one, Charlie? I think my editor actually had recommended it. I, we, uh, we have been talking about Russian literature and he said, oh, you should read Victor Serge, uh, The Case of Comrade Tuleyev. Uh, and I did it's it's about the soviet era 1937 1938 of stalin's terror mm. um, and <laughs> you know as if we didn't have enough to deal with um so but you might be thinking it's in a way going to it to put other things into contextualize them or something. Well, yeah, I I think so. I, in fact, I think that's exactly right. I think one of the things that literature helps us do is put things into perspective. And you read a novel like Victor Serge, uh, the case of Comrade to live, and you think, oh, well, the life I've got now isn't so bad compared to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a copy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Charlie, have you read Ali Smith's like her season books? Have you been reading those? 
Oh, right. Those books. Yeah. 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 I did read one of them. Um, summer, I think. And I just, it was one of those cases where it's the right book, but the wrong time in your life to read oh, it. Oh. Uh, and what do you, can you say more about that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, this is just a crackpot theory, of course. Um, <laughs> Love but, it. But um, some books fall into your hands, particularly when you're an adolescent and a young adult, and it's just the right period in your life for that particular book. And um, you carry the book around. It, it, it's, it's as much yours as it is the author's, and you, you just internalize it. And then later in life, I think, you know, you have to bring the right, I'm trying to find the right word, the, the right predisposition to any particular book. And, you know, if you've had a bad day or you've had a bad week or, you've, or something has happened in your life to um, make you not receptive to a particular mm -hmm. book, you can sort of recognize that it's a perfectly good book, but that you have to come back to it later. And that's the way I felt about, about that book. Uh, it, it also had been a book that, that my editor, Dan Frank, had recommended. And, and I gave it a shot, and I just thought, oh, this is not the right book for me right now. Can you think of a book that was like that for you, that was the one that you like carried around with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I can remember those books. Uh, and in fact, um, it's interesting you should ask that question, because when I finished the Victor Serge book, I had this... Um, desire to read a, a novel that I had read in 10th grade, uh, uh, Edith Wharton's uh, Ethan Frome. Oh. Uh, I haven't read that book since 1962 or 1963. And I wanted to see, now that I'm an old man, I wanted to see what that book was like and why it had appealed to me as much as it did. Uh, and I think I, I think I know another book, you know, I don't know if we remember the books we read in high school very well, but I also remember reading Thomas Hardy's The Return of the Native. Um, I was a junior in high school and man, that book just knocked me for a loop. Um, I haven't read it, Charlie. <laughs> it's it's great. It's great. But, you know, the the reason it's so good to read when you're 17 years old is that if you're in high school and you're a moody adolescent, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> which I sure was. Kind of uh, dragged that through college with me. Yeah, yeah, me too. And so I like these moody, um, you know, there's a word that Jim Harrison liked, uh, unconsolable. I like oh. these moody, unconsolable stories. Uh, and uh, Hardy's book was like that. And Ethan Frome, uh, Edith Wharton's 
book is all about suffering. You know, it, 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 I think, you know, I think when you're 16, 17 and 18, your emotions are very pure. Um, you, you can hear that if you listen to high school and college choirs, those kids sing with such purity of feeling. And um, that's sort of what I think about those those two books. I mean, the other books that really got to me when I was an adolescent are probably ones that nobody remembers or has heard of. Um, but those two, I mean, well, what are what are they, Charlie? Give it, give us a try. <laughs> um, the Night of the Hunter. Oh. By Davis Grubb it was turned into an. Um, a spectacularly interesting movie directed by uh, Charles Lawton, starring oh. Robert Mitchum. doesn't look like anybody else's American film. It looks like, well, maybe it does. It looks like a D.W. Griffith uh, silent film or like a German expressionist film. Um, but the, the novel is wonderful. It was... I think it was the first time I'd read a book with a real lyrical flow. I had never read Sherwood Anderson in those days. So um, I, I absorbed it from Davis Scrub. It was one of those books that made me want to be a writer. So, and so you absorbed it. So that was like, were you consciously absorbing it? Or do you think it was something that you recognized and as something that you valued and that you believed to be beautiful that could could like then like you said inspire you to be a writer um i just knew that i loved it and and i just knew that within the pages of that book or these other books i felt welcome which was an unusual feeling for me in those days um I, I just didn't feel welcome much of anywhere. I think adolescents, adolescent boys, um, uh, the nerdy types of the kind I was, uh, you know, you don't feel welcome at home. You don't feel welcome anywhere, but, but these books kind of welcome you in. No, I didn't have the... Uh, cognitive equipment in those days to analyze why I was responding to these books in the way that I did. Um, I just, um, I just absorbed them. I guess it's what you'd call an unmediated experience. I, it wasn't mediated by any structures of understanding I had. You know what I mean? This, this I do. That, I'm actually that... I'm nodding. I know you can't see me. <laughs> I'm <laughs> nodding. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and when you get older, it's harder to have that experience of a book, but now and then you can it, it still happens. When has it happened to you? Even like even in part if it's not as sort of that feels like kind of all encompassing these other experiences. Okay, well, I'll give you an example. I was reading this Victor Serge novel, The Case of Comrade Tuleyev. Right. And I was sitting in the waiting room uh, at Bloomington Subaru, and they were <laughs> uh, change, They were rotating the tires of my car and changing the oil. And I got to a part of 
that book where one of the old Bolsheviks who's under arrest from Stalin decides that he's going to, um, he decides that he's, he's just going to go more or less on a hunger strike and maybe die that way rather than being shot. And I know uh, to your listeners, this sounds just unimaginably grim, mm -hmm. uh, but the, the writing just took me away. I, um, I was sitting there in the waiting room of Bloomington Subaru and I hardly knew where I was because I was so wrapped up in the story of this old guy who was going to stage one last brave stand against what he understood to be tyranny. I, and, you know. Oh, uh, that's, that's so moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then were they like, Baxter, Baxter. <laughs> Baxter, like over the intercom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got an extra, an extra car for sale. Anyone who wants. <laughs> right, right. So, Charlie, when when you were thinking about, well, you you talked about the books being welcome within the pages and and recognizing something about the written word or literature that was you that could be you. How like how did you? decide that you wanted to try to write because you began with poems right because yeah. I, I was looking on your website and looking <laughs> I love how you have some early poems up there um <laughs> yeah uh, you know I, I'm not sure that anybody consciously decides to go into the arts maybe music musicians probably do because they're so obviously gifted in the way that most of us are not, that it's as if a path has been laid out for them. But in my case, I, you know, I, I never had encountered any writers in high school. And it, it seemed like an almost preposterous uh, path to get on because I didn't know how I was going to make a living at it. But at some point in my 20s, I thought, I had the feeling that writing was probably the best thing, the best thing I was good at. The only, maybe the only <laughs> thing I was good at. Um, and even if I had a lot of disappointments, which I did subsequently, uh, it was what I wanted to do. And I had a couple of teachers who encouraged me, you always need that, somebody who will open the door for you. But, I, you know, I think it's much more common now because of all of the MFA programs we've got for young people to think, oh, well, they might have some sort of life as writers. But in the 60s, it was a very unusual career path and absolutely nobody would encourage, well, I'm, I'm contradicting <laughs> myself. I did have two people who encouraged me, but there wasn't much of that. And it certainly didn't come from my parents. In, the, in your 20s, is that when you were teaching elementary school? Um, yeah. Um, I, I graduated from college, from McAllister uh, here in Minnesota. And then I went to Michigan 
to teach fourth grade in um, pin conning. Uh, it's in the Saginaw Valley, right on Lake Huron. And then I went to graduate school, uh, but not for an MFA. I, I got a, a PhD and came back to Michigan uh, because I landed a job at Wayne State. Uh, and that kept me afloat for a long time. And they were they were pretty good to me at, at Wayne State. I slowly but surely started to get a foothold in the life of writing. I was also writing criticism in those days, too. And it gave you a structure to... Did you start with stories, Charlie? I really started with poems, but a lot of my poems were a narrative. They were story poems, and they had characters in them. And anybody reading them would have said, oh, oh this guy really is a narrative poet, and he sh probably should be writing fiction. And so I turned to writing fiction, but I, my first real efforts were um, at novels. And the novels were terrible, and nobody would print them. So that's why I started writing short stories, because I had to teach myself how to structure a story and how to build a characterization. And it's easier to learn how to do that if you're writing stories than if you're writing a novel. Novels, as people say, are the novel is a very forgiving form. And it's easy when you're writing a novel to make a mistake and not notice, hmm. uh, not notice until you're 80 or 90 pages past the mistake and the novel has, without your having become quite aware of it, uh, jumped the track and gone off and crashed. Is there a, an example to be more specific with that? Because I almost feel like when you said the novel is a forgiving form, that it means that you would, you would if you had the perseverance you will have a novel <laughs> of some shape. I I can give you an example, um, but it's from a novel that I read at the end of the summer, and it's by a very well-known writer who's a friend of mine, and the novel has been published, and it's a success, and there's a terrible technical error in it that made it almost unreadable for me. And it has to do with the problem of point of view. Um, there are four main characters. Three of them are given sections in which their point of view is given. Uh, the fourth one never has his point of view uh, produced in in the book. And so uh, you're reading through it and you think, oh, he's either, this character is either going to be the person who's guilty or the person who dies. <laughs> uh, oh, and, okay. and in fact, what this person knows has to get into the book one way or another. And the way it happens is just technically, it's amateur night. And you read the book and think, how could anybody who's had bestsellers and is known as a wonderful writer, how could anybody make this sort of mistake? 
and the way you make it is is just assuming that readers are not going to notice and and i guess often they don't well charlie what's interesting sometimes is maybe because of its girth and like it's the momentum of a novel like what it is you can have the thing right but there's it could also maybe not have the same um uh, magic some i don't mean to say magic like it's like but the thing that about something when everything is working in consort somehow or unless it's not meant to but that's part of what's up with the thing and how it works you know it's like the that's its own way of ticking and well i guess what i'm trying to say <laughs> is is that that and maybe that's the thing that with novels that have all of these these attentions given to them by the writer the the reader might not even know it but it's the one that it's the thing that makes the novel that could be lasting or the the novel that will stay with that particular reader longer right right well and and also it's important to remember that fellow novelists people who write novels and have uh, written fiction for a long time, I think don't read fiction the way many readers do. We look uh, mm-hmm. at structure, we look at the use of setting, we, we, we look at the way the, the writer has employed characterization. And, you know, writers read critically unless uh, unless the novel is so powerful that it just takes them away. It's very hard. Like like uh, Victor Surge. Like Victor Surge and you at the the auto dealership. Right, right. And, you know, and the problem with my writing when I was in my 20s and early 30s was that uh, the fiction just felt unreal. The, the the characters didn't seem truthful or real. The situations were outlandish. Uh, the sentences were pretty great, uh, <laughs> I suppose. But, uh, you know, they were you, in the... That can take you pretty far, Charlie, right? That's one of some of the things when the sentences... Yeah, but I... It's true, but I didn't... Um, I didn't really buckled down enough to um, to make my stories plausible to make the the novels plausible and since we're talking now uh, just after the release of my novel the sun collective i can say that this novel of all of the books i've published is the one that most resembles uh, the kind of fiction that I was writing when I was a young man, except that uh, this book um, has at least part of its investment in the real world. The, the other part of its investment is in a kind of wonderland, uh, a, a sort of phantasmagorical setting. But I thought that was justified by the kind of life most of us have been living for the last four or five years. Completely. When did when did you start 
drafting the Sun Collective? Five years ago. Okay. Five years ago. Uh, uh, just before the um, presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And right around the time that I moved into this part of Minneapolis and started walking around the city and talking to homeless people. Those were, I mean, those were really the two things that kind of got this book started. As a writer, it seems like you've always been a walker and that the place that you are in, infuses um, the writing in some ways, in many ways. Right. Because yeah. in, in this, and the, so the setting for the Sun Collective is, is Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, the the setting for this book is Minneapolis and is full of Minneapolis landmarks, just as uh, the Feast of Love uh, was set in Ann Arbor and has uh, a number of Ann Arbor landmarks in it, including Almendinger Park and, <laughs> and the Ypsilanti Water Tower and places like that. Yeah, I you know, I think wherever you are, that setting ends up soaking into you if if you're a writer mm -hmm. uh, it, it becomes your imagination's home and that's how it was with this book and certainly with the feast of love charlie how did you decide that you were going to talk and listen to homeless people who become characters in the or have roles to play in the novel, The Sun Collective. How did you start as a writer yourself, walking around, talking and listening? You know, it wasn't really a decision. I, I'd be standing on the platform for the light rail that would take me over to my office or, or to the University of Minnesota, and somebody would come up to me. Uh, in one instance, at least this guy came up to me and said, have you got a buck for a beer? And I said, yeah, I'll give you a buck, maybe not for a beer. And he said, what are you, from AA? And <laughs> I said, uh, not really, well, sort of. And then I said, because it was in the winter, I said, where, are you, where have you been sleeping? Are you okay? And he, he said, oh, I sleep on the light rail. I said, what, what about the shelters? And he said, oh, I don't. I don't like to go over there. There are a lot of creeps over there. And he said, besides, they won't let me in. I said, why won't they let you in? He said, I'm a drunk. They don't let drunks into shelters. And I said, well, have you tried to stop drinking? I can't do that, he said. I said, why not? And, he's, and, and he said, because I'm crazy. And I, I, I mean, that, that I, I had conversations like that around the city and... You know, if you live in a city the size of Minneapolis, I don't know how things are in Ann Arbor right now, but there are a lot of homeless people. And, yes. you know, a, a, yes. a lot of middle class people don't want to talk to them, but I'm perfectly happy talking to them if they want to talk to me. And, you know, they often have interesting stories to tell. So... There was that, and there was the other time that a veteran 
who had been in the war in Afghanistan told me that he had been in hand-to-hand combat in that war and the sweat of the man he was uh, fighting fell from the man's forehead into his mouth, the guy who was talking to me. Yes. And he said, it poisoned me. My my head hasn't been straight ever since. And and both of those dialogues are in the are in the Sun Collective. They're in the book. Yeah. They're in the book. Yeah. Hey, Charlie, would you mind would you mind reading? I wouldn't mind at all. Um, just to set this up, the opening chapter has one of my protagonists, a guy named Bredigan, who's late middle aged uh, and has a heart condition. He's on the light rail and he's headed out to the Mall of America, which in my novel is called the Utopia Mall. <laughs> and uh, he's going out there because he has a bunch of he has a group of friends who call themselves the Thundering Herd. And in in the early morning, during hot days and and cold days, they exercise by doing power walking around the mall. Uh, when he's when he gets on the light rail, um, somebody sits down next to him. This guy named Arver Jefferson, and he's he wore a three-piece suit, a trench coat, and a soft black trilby hat. The hat made him appear as if he were in costume. He trailed a small suitcase on wheels. His glasses consisted of small tinted circles on thin, thin gold frames, and some property in the lenses reflected light in such a way as to make his eyes nearly invisible. Standing in the aisle next to Bredigan, bathed in soapy blue sunshine, he looked down, smiled, and asked if the seat next to Bredigan's, the one in which Bredigan's baseball cap lay, was taken. Bredigan says no, and the man sits down. And for me, this is a kind of perfect situation because I love it when strangers meet (laughs) and start talking to each other. One of the reasons I like it is that you don't have to go into flashbacks because Mm. um, these two characters, the reader doesn't know anything more about these two characters than they know about each other. Um, so you can keep the scene going on in the present. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reader gets the feeling that he, she, or they have not come into the movie late, that the movie has started <laughs> at the moment they started reading. The doctor identifies himself as a doctor of proton analytics, and Bredigan says, I never heard of that. What is that? <laughs> the doctor drew in a long breath. I'll give you an example. He has a slight Southern accent. I'll give you an example. You see that man over there, he asked, nodding in the direction of the young couple who had followed Bredigan onto the train. The man wore earbuds and a stack of pamphlets lay in his lap. The woman seemed to be studying both Bredigan and the doctor. Yes, the doctor affirmed. That one. As soon as I get off this train, he will ask you for money. He will test you. He will beg you for something, anything. You must give him a dollar at least. Do you know the legend of Notre Seigneur 
en pauvre, our Lord in rags. No, Bredigan said. It's a French-Canadian legend of Jesus, the doctor said, with low-level excitement as he warmed to his subject. And in this legend, Jesus is dressed as a beggar and is roaming the earth, testing the generosity of everyone he meets. It is a spot quiz for your salvation. You could think of that man over there as Jesus. I recommend that you do so. Did you say that you have a medical condition? Bredigan nodded. The airport is coming up soon and I shall have to be on my way, the doctor informed Bredigan. But I will tell you another legend that grew up among my people in the South. This one will help you, I guarantee. It will help you personally. Here is what you must do. What I have for you is a cure, a cure for afflictions. The doctor now seemed nervously energized and was enunciating his words with care as if he were speaking to a child with disabilities. Find a mirror, the largest one you can easily carry, let's say a hand mirror, and take that mirror to a creek, or even better, to a flowing stream, or best of all, a river. And here is what you must do. You must lower the mirror into the water. As he spoke, the doctor's hands moved in the air in front of him, pantomiming, or so it seemed to Bredigan, a vigorous form of washing. The water has to flow over the mirror or the cure won't work. And once you have the water streaming over the glass, you wash your reflected face in the mirror. Not your actual face, but your mirrored face in the water. Holding the mirror so as not to lose it, you wash your face, your reflected face, your face in the mirror, and you will get well. You will recover and renewed. You will prosper. I give you my personal guarantee. Really, I promise you, you will get better. Freed from all your afflictions. This is an ancient cure. It is proven. It is so. There is vast literature to this effect. The little recital sounded like nonsense to Bredigan, but even nonsense can serve a purpose sometime. I must go now, the doctor said. Enjoy your walk and do as I say. You will get better. I guarantee you will be saved. As he turned, his glasses reflected the sun. Perhaps you shall see me again and you can tell me how you got well. So that's in the opening chapter of the novel and this bizarre idea of washing a mirror in the water is uh, something I discovered from doing some reading I had been doing. This is five years ago 
about the 1918 flu epidemic. Charlie, you're, you're a bit of a prophet here. <laughs> well, what I found out was that, of course, in those days, they had no idea what was causing the, uh, it was called the Spanish flu, 1918, 1919. I mean, nobody had seen a virus. The micro, you, you can't see uh, a virus with an optical microscope. And so there were a lot of uh, country cures. There was a lot of folklore about the illness, about the germs. And one theory was that the germs collected on mirrors. And so people, particularly out in the country, would take their mirrors to uh, water, uh, streaming water, because streaming water, as opposed to still water, was thought to be pure. And they would wash their mirrors in the water. And I altered it a bit so that they they would also wash their faces. In, so the, the face in, would be reflected. The face would them. be reflected, yeah. Uh, and I just thought dramatically, wow, what a, what a great, what a great thing. So even though Bredigan in this scene is saying it sounds a little bit like nonsense, it yeah. all has its purpose. And he then later on in the novel, he tries it. Yeah, yeah. For, for Alma, for his wife. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, for himself, he doesn't care ab about remedies, but he, he loves his wife very much and thinks that if she has any afflictions, why not try? Why not try this on her? And um, she, she has a reaction to it. Yes. A, a, a very radical reaction to it. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to spoil this for your listeners if they should happen to get the book, but what happens is that it opens up a portal between her and the animal world <laughs> uh, that she hadn't known was there, and it, it changes her life. And also, the other thing that the doctor says to him about Notre Seigneur en Pauvre, our Lord in Rags, Jesus asking for money in the last chapter, the very last chapter of the book. The final scenes, yes. The final scene, Notre Seigneur en Pauvre shows up and Bredigan gives him all the money that he has, in that he's carrying. and Even uh, his wallet. In his wallet. But he gives, the whole thing. <laughs> he gives him the wallet. He gives him the credit cards. He gives him everything. And Bredigan gets a blessing from um, the man, which drives out Bredigan's demons so that um, he's finally at peace. You know, uh, novelists are very tricky. If, if, if you begin a novel with something like... Uh, an, an oddball doctor, you you have about a 50% chance that the novel is going to end <laughs> with with a, a, a scene that that functions kind of as a frame for the opening scene. And that's what I did with this book. 
Charlie, did did you know that that's what you wanted as a as a tricky novelist <laughs> when you were imagining, envisioning the Sun Collective and in your mind, or or is it something that you came to as you were writing through? Yeah. Oh, T. I had no idea where this was going to go. I had no. When I started this novel, I had no clue where it was going to go. And I thought I probably will be working on this book for the rest of my life. Uh, I I will never find the form for it. Plot has never been a strong suit for me. And I knew that the book was going to have to be plotted. And I thought, I, I, I don't know how to do it. I don't, I, I can't see how to do it. And I just stubbornly kept writing um, to see if I could find out what shape it would take. And it it did help me that Bredigan and his wife uh, had a problem, which was that their son has gone missing and seems to be living among the homeless. Yes. And gradually I uh, came up with a younger couple Christina and Ludlow, who, who are actually, in some sense be, are actually be, in the scene, right, Charlie? That you read for us. Uh, it it looks as if that's Christina and Ludlow. On closer inspection, it's actually not. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But everybody who reads the scene thinks that it's Christina and Ludlow. It's um, is it like an echo of what's like a, a, a foreshadowing, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and in fact. Um, as as we learn, um, Bredigan and his wife are under scrutiny by members of the Sun Collective. Yes, and and that includes Christina and Ludlow, who who are they're not versions of Bredigan and his wife, but they have some correspondences to them, and uh, Christina. Christina starts to take over. She's, I think, the most intelligent and the best educated of all of the characters in the book. And she becomes the hero, uh, for me, of, of the novel, somewhat in the way Chloe became the hero of The Feast of Love. Um, Christina uh, does her best to save... Um, I, I don't want this to sound too grandiose, but she wants to save herself and she wants to save, she sort of wants to save humanity and she mm -hmm. sacrifices a great deal in order to do that. And, and um, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's complicated too. Yeah. It's yeah. complicated, yeah. The, the how of it. Um, Charlie, also from the um, the early, when we were talking about the scene you read for mm -hmm. us from the Sun Collective. Then it connected to a later scene when Charlie and Alma are in one of the city parks and 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 he's washing the mirror without Alma really know what knowing what's going on. And and that's when I think I think we do meet um yes. the, the real Christina and Ludlow <laughs> yes. in in that yeah. in that yeah. moment. That's right. That's that's where we see them for the first time. Um 
because uh, Alma seems to need some sort of help, and Harry Bredigan uh, can't uh, do everything that's necessary, and Christina and Ludlow sort of appear out of nowhere and help them along. And after a few pages, there's a break, and, and we then switch to Christina's point of view from uh, about a year earlier. Charlie, how, when did you know that you were going to have the act, like the Sun Collective that's within the novel? Like, how, how did this uh, community activist center um, come into your uh, vision for, for this novel? Well, you know, I had I had always been interested in the co-op movement, and um, I was interested in some of the little neighborhood groups that have sprung up around Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a much more political, you know, Ann Arbor is very political, but Ann Arbor has nothing on Minneapolis. Yeah, and um, how, how was the city this, this summer, Charlie? Well, it was in an uproar. It, it was in a complete uproar. And I live downtown. And uh, on top of what the virus has done, uh, a lot of the uh, businesses just were boarded up. Um, one street guy looked around at the businesses and said to me, yeah, it's a ghost town all over the world and um, there's a quite a, a considerable um, quarrel argument about uh, the funding of the police here in Minneapolis and anyway yes. I was yes. I was interested yes. in the oh sorry go ahead with good reason I don't know it's it's been simmering and Yes, I just wanted to know yeah, with yeah. you as also someone who is walking in the city and yeah. what what you had had seen and felt. Well, I, I you know, I just thought what if a neighborhood group that was devoted to let's say opening a free store and having a community garden and maybe was beginning to help uh in getting uh homeless people sheltered in some way or another. Uh, what if I could gather all of this under the general category of the Sun Collective and then introduce into this group um, a radical, which turns out to be Ludlow, <laughs> uh, who has something else or seems to have something else in mind. Right. For the group, um, if, if he had been reading, for example, Lenin's State and Revolution and wanted to, what if he wanted violent change? What then? And, and that was when I thought I could see the trajectory of the, of, of the book. Oh, um, oh, when sort of when you understood what Ludlow's uh, motivation was or, or so. Yeah, I, I had um, a character in the Feast of Love named Oscar and who was 
Chloe's boyfriend, and I had absolutely no idea how to structure that book until I realized that Oscar had to die if the book was going to succeed. Mm. And in the same way, uh, or in, I should say, a similar way, I saw that Ludlow, uh, if this book was going to succeed, had to have some real trouble in mind um, for... Um, uh, the 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 for the book to achieve some kind of shape uh, with without that trouble, um, I I I couldn't see that the plot was going to um, that that the story was going to go anywhere important. It's it's so interesting because in a way that there because there are other characters. In, in the universe that you that you created with like for example um tim the uh Bredigan and alma's son because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. he could have been a character that caused but he was seeking some kind of redemption yeah yeah he has a he has a bad conscience and um feels that he's done some terrible things and he doesn't want violence he it's exactly as you say he wants redemption also he wants to become a a person a real person he has that actor's problem of being able to mimic or to pretend to be um somebody he isn't but you know, like a lot of actors, he's not sure who he is himself, and that's that's what he wants more than anything. I was thinking of um, Pinocchio. You know, Pinocchio just wants to be a real boy, and um, Tim wants to be an actual human being, uh, and he he succeeds eventually. So, Charlie. It- I love this. I love the Sun Collective. This uh, the title of it. I love the book. Um, how it's in the center. I think it's interesting how you have sort of a, um, a, a one of the characters, the leader or the not the guru of the Sun Collective, but a very mysterious man who can only be out of the sun and in the shadows. That's right. That's right. It's in, and then. I, and in the scene, and to go back to the scene that you read for us earlier, because mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't read along with you. I listened, and it was, it was so, it was so interesting to be able to hear it. Something like hear you reading it, something that I've already read a while ago and had time to process a bit, but I heard it differently. Like I heard these things. Like I heard you say, like there's a test, right? Like, mm-hmm. so it's testing you, like testing Bredigan, and then that there's a cure. Yeah. And then that Bredigan's asked to believe, like if he believes in this doctor of, was it proto-atomic? I, <laughs> <laughs> but I know being asked to believe, it it feels like that's also sort of this this work of the Sun Collective as well. I guess yeah. maybe for each of each of the characters mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, 
um, what I think um, fiction often thrives on is to have one character whom you care about turn to another character whom you also care about or are interested in and to say there's something you should do and if you do it you will gain something from it my previous book was called there's something i want you to do and that book is full of what I call request moments. Hmm. And request moments, I think, are always by their nature dramatic. Uh, you, you turn to your partner or your significant other and you say, honey, there's something I want you to do. And if you love me, you'll do it for me. Oh, and, and, and. <laughs> I'd appreciate it if you do it by Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the request and then there's the condition that is if you love me you'll do it for me if you if you're really my friend you'll do it for me or if you're a real man you'll do it for me it becomes a kind of dare and then you set the story clock um, which gives it a kind of urgency. Um, the, the doctor hasn't given Bredigan a story clock, um, so it's open-ended. But he has said, well, if you do this thing with Notre Seigneur en pauvre, you'll be saved. And if you do this crazy thing with a mirror, you'll be cured of affliction. And um, I just think, you know, these sorts of requests or um, they're not commands. Um, just, uh, they just seem to set the story uh, onto a, a path and in a particular direction. Hmm. And and you're exactly right that in some sense the sun the sun collective is also requesting its members to do something. I mean, those of us who worry about uh, poverty and and homelessness, I mean, you, you just think, what can I do? What should I be doing? Yes. And. Uh, so the the novel is a is a kind of roundabout answer to that question. Charlie, thanks so much for talking with me today. I've loved it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, T. This has been a a, a great pleasure for me. Truly, friend of the show today <laughs> on Living Writers, Charles Baxter, his latest novel, The Sun Collective. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
Maybe I'm in love with you. 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 I say maybe. Maybe I'm in love with you. Charlie, I'm going to stop the recording now. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're airing selected hours from our extensive broadcast archive and new live and pre-recorded shows during the current emergency. Check our schedule at WCBN.org. Hi, everyone. Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that after 75 years... Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when it's dry or windy. Be careful burning yard waste, because wildfires can even start in your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Short ideas repeated massage the brain. Horizons. Music that looks far away. Give you a telescope to use with your ears. Sundays at 6 p.m. on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. They would always want to look beyond the horizon. We don't just look beyond the horizon. We look beyond the event horizon here at WCBN. Thanks to Alex for, you know, I, I didn't get to his whole show, but I heard everything from 10 minutes after four. So I can always pass judgment on that. And it's a great way to wake up, I got to say. And I uh, hope that it makes your day all that much better having Alex here and the rest of WCBN staff, because you know what? We're on the air 24 hours a day. We take this mission very seriously. We're part of the educational mission of the University of Michigan.